beginning in verse 24. I think it's on. There it is. We got it now. I just need to get in the right chapter here. Yeah, beginning in verse uh, 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until this evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. And now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was, was dropping. But no one put his hand um, to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge. Uh, father charged the people with the oath. And so he put out the tip of, his, uh, of the staff that was in his hand, and he dipped it in the honey and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. In other words, he was... Lifted up. It was encouraged. Verse 28, Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. And we said, Amen. Yeah. Um, father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. Uh, um, how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Verse 31, They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Agilon. The people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. And then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he, and he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox and brought him that night, um, uh, brought with him... Um, his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. Saul built an altar to the Lord, and it was the first altar he had built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. We already know why, don't we? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Verse 38. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how the sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. And they said to, uh, and and he said uh, to all Israel, "You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side." And the people said to Saul, "Do what seems good to you." Therefore Saul said, "O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day?" Of course, he already knew that. He knew why God was not answering him. If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. These were a way in which Israel made decisions in those days. Probably a part of the priestly garments. Sort of like casting lots, if you will, to make decisions between two 
things. It seems random to us, but Israel believed that the Lord worked in it. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of, of, of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me, and more also, uh, you, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair on his, of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. At least someone was sane in this whole story. Verse 46, Then Saul went up from, the, from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their, to their own place. Verse 47, When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly, and he struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi and Malchishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger, uh, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam. That's easy for you to say. (laughs) The daughters of Hemias. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Nair, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached himself. He attached him to himself. Father, we're, we're grateful again, Lord, for Your Word. Your Word, Lord, that is um, without any mixture of error. A Word, Lord, we can trust, a sure Word. Uh, Father, a reliable Word, a, a, a timely Word. Lord, we thank You that You, you make no errors, um, that we can open this book from Genesis to Revelation and get a sure word from You. Lord, Your people need a sure word. With all the lies and all the half-truths and everything else, Lord, that we're bombarded with in the world, we thank You, Father, that we can open Your Word and get an absolutely truthful word from You. Lord, You, you are a God who cannot lie. You are the way, the truth, and the life. You are the Spirit of truth. I pray, Father, that that we, God, would acknowledge that, that we would yield, Lord, to Your Word and to Your truth. Teach Your people today, God, again, that we might be changed by it. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me, let me in these next few minutes just finish up this... Uh, this uh, narrative here, obviously we're, we're, we won't go uh, verse by verse uh, through this rather long narrative, but I want to give you, hopefully give you an understanding of what's, uh, what's, uh, what's happening here. We, we had really a kind of positive uh, story in that first section, did we not? In that first section of, uh, of, uh, of 1 Samuel chapter 14, it seems to be kind of uplifting. We, we see the faith of Jonathan. I mean, what a, what a tremendous story of Jonathan's faith and God's uh, gracious salvation. But then you see a contrast there in verse 24, don't you? Very, very, very strong contrast. I, I've, I've simply entitled this message, A Bittersweet Victory. 
a bittersweet victory. And it's found there in verses 24 to 46. I, uh, I, I like uh, what uh, Dale Davis writes in, in, in kind of introducing this, uh, this story. He writes about a, a minor league baseball game. And, and here's, what he, here's what he says. He says, I once read a story about a baseball game uh, played about the turn of the century by two Minnesota semi-pro teams. At the end of nine innings, they were locked in a scoreless tie. In the top of the, of the tenth, however, the team from Benson scored a run. Wilmar, the other team, came to bat in the bottom half of the inning. Wilmar's pitcher, Thielman, he says, smacked a single. The next batter, O'Toole, smashed a terrific drive deep into the outfield. The crowd began its customary and proper uproar. Thielman rounded second base and headed for third with O'Toole digging after him. <laughs> As Thielman arrived at third, however, he collapsed. He collapsed. O'Toole dared, uh, dare not uh, uh, pass him in the, in the base path because he could be out, right? And so he uh, obligingly half-carried and dragged Thielman the 90 feet to home plate. Amazingly, the umpire allowed both runs. Wilmar had won. Thielman was the winning pitcher. Thielman was also dead. Yeah. He had died of a heart failure at third base. Yeah. You know, sometimes a victory can be bitter sweet. There can be a sadness in success, right? This is the feel, I think, of the rest of 1 Samuel chapter 14. We have this wonderful, glorious story of God's deliverance and salvation, and then we have the rest of it. Really, Saul's mess, right? Sometimes a victory can be bitter sweet. This is, again, the feel of the rest of this chapter. This, is, this, this tremendous act of faith of Jonathan and work of deliverance from God gets overshadowed by this dark cloud of, of, of Saul's actions and interactions there. We already know from chapter 13, God has rejected the dynasty of Saul. Samuel has separated himself from Saul. They have no direction, no immediate direction from the Lord. Saul's just simply acting on his own, right? Israel wins here, but can hardly celebrate. Uh, we we read uh, verse twenty-three. I mean, it's such a bright spot. What the Lord delivered Israel, saved Israel, but it's contrasted with the rest of the story. In the ESV, uh, you have the word beginning and. Some some of the translations will will use the word but there in twenty-four, highlighting that 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 contrast that I think is meant to be there. There is a sharp break between verse twenty-three and verse. 24. I mean, right? Here's Jonathan. Here's Jonathan's faith. And then enter Saul. (laughs) There it is. Enter Saul. The king who has lost his way. The king who has lost the direction of the word. He, 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 he had a way, I think, of making it all about him and his enemies. Isn't that, isn't that what he says? And, and the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul, there he is had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until this is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Do you hear that? Mm. Who's it about? It wasn't about God at all, was it? It was just, just about Saul. Just about Saul. This is what it's come to, at least at this point in his life. Saul placed a curse on anyone who ate food before there was total victory, which uh, I think is kind of the idea of the text. It says till evening, but the idea was until, until we're avenged, until I'm avenged, until we destroy the Philistines, no one is to eat by penalty of death, we learn, right? 
So the people were hard-pressed. In other words, the people were hungry. They'd been fighting all day. The, the battle was hard. The troops had just gotten the, their courage back, right? They'd just come out of caves and they'd just uh, come out of their uh, sort of associating with the Philistines, their, their fair-weather Israelite faithfulness. They had just been encouraged now to enter into the battle. And now this. Now this. Sorry, you can't eat. Can't eat until I'm avenged. Saul says... There in verse 25 to 31, there's military exhaustion. Military exhaustion. In verse 32 to 35, there's ritual transgression. What did they do? They ate the food with the blood. They killed the spoil. And before they could even get it past medium rare, what did they do? They just ate it. They just ate it with the blood. Boy, by the way, if you're a Jewish person, that's a no-no. It was against the dietary laws that God had given to ancient Israel. We enjoy a rare or a medium rare steak, but you did not eat one in those days. Right? Hmm. I was thinking about uh, our, my friends in, in Zimbabwe. One, one night we're sitting around the fire uh, there in, in Zim and uh, Brother Trust was uh, roasting some corn and some, uh, um, they called them ground nuts. We would just call them peanuts. And they're roasting them there. And he said, you know the, you know the problem with this? That's what he said. And I said, what's the problem with this? He says, it usually gets gone before it gets finished. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. We're sitting there and these guys are coming by. And there's, I mean, it's an open fire on just a turned over pot lid and everybody's coming by and just grabbing handfuls and grabbing handfuls. And every time he's, he's speaking to them, rebuking them in their language, I have no idea what he's saying. <laughs> but they're just coming by and grabbing it and grabbing it and grabbing it and grabbing it until it's, it's gone before it even gets done. They did, they did uh, uh, take a few off of the coals to give to me, which was very nice. <laughs> but this is the idea for the people of Israel, right? They, they were eating it before it was done. Yeah. yeah. They were hungry. They were, if you will, exhausted from the battle. But they were violating the dietary law of God. They were offending God by their eating. And we can uh, sort of lay this all on Saul, can't we? Military exhaustion, ritual transgression. And nearly, by the way, and nearly the death of their Savior, Jonathan. In verses 36 to 46. But the people redeem him. The Bible says here, we're not told how they redeem him, but his life is spared. Praise be to God. We have this godless king now with no direction from God, just making decisions on his own with no direction, with, with, with no thought, no, no, no word from Samuel, the prophet, uh, to, to do any of these things. He just took these things in his own hand. Praise be to God, his life was spared. They are no longer hard-pressed because of the Philistines. But the Bible says here, now they, they are hard-pressed because of Saul's hasty oath and curse. Sometimes our greatest difficulties in life and ministry don't come from out there in the world, but come from right here inside our families and our churches. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, we said this in the, in the, in the first service. Some, some, sometimes, and, and sometimes our greatest difficulties are, are not from over there somewhere, but, but right here. Right here in the middle of our church. Right here in the middle of our, our um, ministry or service. We said some of, the, some of the hardest things in ministry is having to, to deal with people. I joked to uh, the first service, brother, I said, I said uh, ministry would be wonderful if it wasn't for people. We said that jokingly. I just meant that about Harry, and we said that in the first. We just said that in the first service. So, sometimes people, have, some, sometimes people we love have this strange ability to turn success into stress. They, they like to complicate a task, make things more difficult than they need to be. This was Saul. 
Saul had become such a fellow to Jonathan. And by the way, all of Israel... And I think, it, I think it would be helpful in kind of thinking about this bittersweet sort of victory to sort of contrast, if we will, Jonathan and, and Saul for a minute. Uh, let's, let's look at that. I think it will help us. Um, think, think about the positive picture of Jonathan set against the follies of Saul. Saul couldn't wait on Samuel back there in chapter 13, nor the, nor the Lord. Do you remember what Samuel had said? Go to Gilgal. Yeah. The, the place of uh, God's people meeting, the place that Joshua had gathered the people uh, to, to, to sort of circumcise that, that new uh, generation of Israelites coming into the land. That, for, that place just across the Jordan River where they would first celebrate the Passover on that side of the river. That place where, where, where God would call the people to a renewed faithfulness. Right? If the Lord is God, what? follow Him. And it would also be the place that Samuel would call the people and say, wait seven days. I'm coming. I'm going to offer sacrifices. We're going to get direction from the Lord. And of course, what we know that the story says, Saul waited seven days, but he didn't wait till the end of the seventh day. He waited long enough. The Philistines were hard pressing against, against them. There, were, there was tension. He felt like, I've got to act. I've got to do something. And so what did he do? He offered the sacrifices. Instead of waiting upon Samuel to come, immediately the Bible tells us Samuel came. He's confronted in his sin. He says he, he tries to blame Samuel. You know, you, you didn't come. You didn't come, so I was forced, he says. In fact, he, that's the word he uses. I was forced to offer the sacrifices. Right? This was Saul. story goes that he, he departs ways with Samuel. Samuel goes one way. He goes another way. That direction from the Lord, that word that came through the, the, the prophetic word that came through Samuel, Saul no longer had the benefits of. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Mm. Saul offered the sacrifices that were unlawful for him to offer. Saul is under the pomegranate tree here in our story when he should have been leading the armies of Israel. Saul had, had been abandoned by Samuel and as a result, the leadership of God Himself. But on the other hand, Jonathan. Jonathan had become, if you will, a savior for Israel. I mean, if you pay attention to the text, you realize that Jonathan, not Saul, is more royal material than his father. He has believed God. He has stepped up to fight the Philistines. He has provoked Israel's courage. Right? Israel sees Jonathan's courage, or at least sees the result of Jonathan's courage, and is built up, strengthened to join in the fights. Yeah. This is Jonathan. I mean, what, great, what a great king Jonathan would have made but he'll never get the opportunity. I mean, this is, I think, where it becomes, if you will, more tragic and bittersweet in the story. More so than not being able to eat food, more so than them, than them, them violating the, the law. Jonathan is being set up here. And as the writer promotes Jonathan and shows how much king material he is, he's contrasted against his father, but he'll never get the opportunity to be king. Never. Hmm. Jonathan will never be king because his daddy's dynasty has been rejected. Jonathan, who is so suited for kingship, will never have that opportunity to serve in that capacity. Now, now we modern Christians will immediately begin to ask, well, why? I mean, what... Why can't just Jonathan be the king? He's the natural leader. I mean, he's the one that's trusting God. Well, why? Well, you know, or, or, or what if? What if Jonathan were king? Why is Jonathan being punished for his father's sin? What a waste, we would say. 
Why couldn't Jonathan have been king instead of Saul? Why does he have to play second fiddle to David? All those kinds of things. These kinds of objections, I I think, are normal, but they're also revealing about us. They're revealing about us. We modern American Christians think that self-fulfillment is is a right. Right? We we, we think that if, if we're successful, if we're talented, if we're resourceful, we should be rewarded. We should get the promotion. We wrongly think that God is simply there to assist us on our journey. To assist us on our journey to the pinnacle of our own successes in life or ministry. He's there, we think, to help us to be all we can be. But listen, we got it backwards, folks. We got that absolutely backwards. We are here for His good pleasure. Amen. We are here to celebrate His success and His glory. Yes. And listen, God always has bigger plans than our successes. Amen. Our personal successes. Always. But we do need to ask when things like this happen, what do you suppose God is up to when He doesn't act like we think He should act? What do you suppose God's up to? He's up to something. <laughs> when we or someone we think is deserving doesn't get the job, doesn't get the promotion, doesn't get the leadership position in the church. Boy, there's a big one. But I think Jonathan, listen, I think Jonathan seemed to know better. He wasn't wasn't campaigning for the throne, right? He wasn't, he wasn't any, we don't see that anywhere in the Scripture where where he's simply trying to get the votes. You know, he's he's campaigning with this person and that person to to get the promotion to kingship. The kingdom was and never was Saul's or Jonathan's. The kingdom belongs to Jehovah. Amen. Yeah. Mm. For Jonathan, the throne was not his to rule. It wasn't his to seize, but his to serve. Do you understand? It was his to serve. I, I think the rest of 1 Samuel will kind of play that attitude out in the life of Jonathan. Who, do, who does he serve later? David, yeah. Yeah, he wasn't jealous. He just... To serve wherever God had him to serve. I mean, and what a lesson for us. <laughs> what a lesson for us in the church. Right? When, when plans don't go the way we expected, when we're not promoted or recognized or acknowledged in the church, maybe the way that we thought we should have been, when we don't get the pat on the back or the applause of men, or the things just don't seem to be working out in our life, that's when we need to remember that we too are simply here to serve. Amen. We're simply here to serve. We're not here to always succeed. We're not here to ascend. Do you understand? We're not here to be promoted. We are here to promote the true King, that is King Jesus and Him alone. Amen? Maybe a bittersweet or a tragic moment in life isn't tragic if it's a life lived in in fidelity to what Christ asks us to do in the circumstances that He places us. Listen, you you may not like your lot in life. Maybe you thought your your life would have turned out differently in some way. Or or maybe you thought you deserved differently. uh, But but this may be the very thing that our great and sovereign God has chosen for you. I mean, you, you can't get any loftier than that if God chose this for you. If God chose the task that He's given you to do, that's a lofty thing. Amen. It's a lofty thing. 
Sometimes God has the most qualified people, the most capable people, in what appear to be very small and insignificant places. He doesn't make them kings. He doesn't make them pastors. He doesn't make them missionaries. He just uses them in other ways for purposes sometimes unknown to us for His glory. God has a different plan for Jonathan, and it's not king. (laughs) And don't feel bad for Jonathan. You hear me? Don't feel bad for Jonathan. He's a child of the king. Yes. (laughs) And that's never a bad thing. (laughs) You and I are children of the king as well. (laughs) Now God is going to make David king, isn't He? Through whom would come King Jesus. That's God's plan. And Jonathan's going to be a great asset, a great encouragement to his friend David. I was thinking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a great example of this, isn't he? I mean, here's a guy, Jesus said, of those born of women, there's none greater than John. And then, and then, you know, he had this great successful ministry out there in the middle of nowhere. He, you know, he had the, whatever it was, First, first Baptist. Sorry, First Baptist, First John the Baptist out there. And he had, this, he had this tremendous ministry out there, you know, and he's baptizing people, and people are coming from all over the place to be baptized by John. And, and then, you know, he, he says some things that, that rattles those in powerful places, and he's put in prison. You remember that? And then he sends messengers to Jesus to ask Him, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? You know, you, you know, he knew Jesus was our, he already knew Jesus was the coming yes, one. Yes. What was he asking? He was asking, you know, I've been a faithful servant. Here, I, are, are you coming to get me? Yes. But, but remember earlier what John had said in the wilderness. He said, "I must decrease, yes. so that he might increase." Mm-hmm. And how far did John the Baptist decrease? His head, His head was cut off. You can't decrease any further than that. But I think John is, a, is an example of someone who, who had to yield to that. This is my lot. This is what Christ has chosen for me. And it's good to serve Christ in this way. One little last section here. I know we haven't just barely touched the text, but one little last section there. Verses 47 to, um, to 52. Let me just read this first little section here and we'll finish this up. I can smell the food as well. When Saul had taken uh, uh, the kingship over Israel, he fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did and he did valiantly, and he struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hand of those who plundered them. We'll pause right there. Here, here's, I think, a summary of Saul's reign. And, and, and you read it... And we, we, we know there's more to come about Saul in the next chapter. And we know we've already learned a few things about Saul in the previous chapter. And, and you read here, and here it's, it's positive, isn't it? You hear about his military successes. It's surprising, I think, for the reader to, to read this. I mean, it's all positive. It's the positive aspects of his successes. We know, again, a little bit about Saul. And I, and I think the leader, a reader, any reader who knows a little bit about Saul would be surprised about the positive nature of this section. It's, it's, uh, it's pro-Saul. Right? It's not anti-Saul. We've just seen, an, again, an extensive section that paints Saul in negative light. This, this terrible oath that he makes. And then the terrible decisions about choosing his own son for, for death in that particular example, right? And we know more negative press is to come in the, in the chapters that follow this. 
The stories of Saul's character are not going to improve. But this section is positive. So we have to ask the question, well, who do we believe? This is the testimony of Scripture. Who do we believe? The positive section or the negative section? Well, listen, if you want to know the truth, you have to believe both. (laughs) You have to believe both. Yeah. This is... This is history's judgment of Saul. It it, it is what could be observed of his accomplishments and his deeds and his successes. Saul made his mark from these verses and evidently made it well. He succeeded as a military leader. Wherever he went, he delivered Israel. Israel. But let me say this. History is not the decisive um, word on any of us. Do you understand? History is not the decisive word on any of us. We can't judge Saul or anyone else by that matter. Uh, no matter the decisive, uh, the decisive judgment or, or the, the history of, of, of anyone, the final judgment, God determines. Yes. God determines. God, who reigns over history, determines actually who we are. Hmm. So what matters then, listen, is not ultimately Saul's success but covenant relationship. You hear me? Jehovah is not looking for winners, but disciples. The, 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 the world loves a winner, right? Remember when, when Jesus was calling followers? You remember that? Uh, what did He call them to do? He, he, said, he said, what? Get your life in order. Be a success. Make straight A's. And then come and follow Me. You say that? No, He didn't say any of that, did He? He didn't say any of that. Work on a resume. No. Get your grades up. Be somebody. No. He said, if any man comes after me, let him deny himself. Take up a cross and follow me. You see, he wasn't calling winners, but people willing to lay down their lives to follow him. Saul has already shown himself to be a failure at his relationship with God. No matter his military and kingly success, he had failed with God. Listen carefully. Faithfulness to God matters much more than personal achievement or job success. We have two estimates of Saul, one historical and the other spiritual. And it's the spiritual one that matters. It's the spiritual one that matters. Both are true of him. As a whole, he was a successful king and military leader. We see that plainly there. These verses confirm that truth. We ought to believe it. It's written. But it's... But, But it is the other that matters. It is the spiritual assessment from God that matters most about Saul and about us. You can can be an historical success and be a moral mess. You you can be named one of who's who and be forgotten in eternity. You you can have your name and lights and be excluded from God's kingdom. You you can have the whole world and lose your soul. Listen, folks, in in kind of closing here, it it ought to make us think about our own lives. What are we living for? Financial security? Vocational success? It ought to make us think about how we raise our children, by the way. How we teach them to think about their future. Listen, our future and the future of our children will not ultimately be determined by a man or woman in Washington, D.C. That's right. A person can be an historical success and a complete failure before God. And I'm telling you that it's the latter that really matters. It matters in your life. It matters in the life of your children. Teach your children about a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
you cultivate your own relationship with Jesus Christ, no matter your successes in this world that's broken and fallen and one one day going to be condemned and judged, it's going to melt with fervent heat. God's going to create it anew one day. Don't be attached to this world and your own successes, your own ascension to whatever it is that you're looking for. Listen, cultivate your relationship with Christ. That's what matters. For what should it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Let me challenge you today to examine who or what it is you're living for. I pray it's for the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter your job, your historical success, or failure, and no matter your educational success, I pray that you would make it your aim to be well-pleasing to Him, to Christ. Father, we thank You for this, Lord, um, this chapter, these truths, God, that You've given to us. We thank You for these words, these, these words of warning, these words of encouragement. May they be for Your people more than words on a page, but living and active words that will get right down inside of us today and fix what is broken there. Thank You for the grace of Your Word. Thank You for the sanctifying work of Your Word, that grace. We pray these things to Your name, to Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.